Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I had a conversation recently with a university president who was talking to me about the pandemic protocols that his institution had had to implement so that they could stay open while so many other schools were closed. What had come as a surprise to him, as a shock to him, was, as a lifelong conservative, how much criticism he received for doing what he needed to do to keep those doors open from people who, it seemed to him, had only arrived to the party recently, but now were condemning him for not being conservative enough. As I spoke to him, I realized that I was witnessing a man who had experienced one of the great challenges of leadership, which is, what do you do when people refuse to follow? I was talking to a pastor recently who told me about a confrontation that he'd had with an angry member of his church who was leaving in disgust but wanted to have an exit interview and explain why it was that he was walking. And in that conversation, He cited the names of a popular podcaster and a famous TV personality and said, I know what they think about his favorite social issues, but I don't know what my pastor thinks. And the irony of that statement was that he actually did know what his pastor thought, and he also had no idea what these other leaders in his life thought about the gospel, for example, about Jesus Christ. The problem wasn't that he didn't know what his pastor thought. The problem was just that his pastor wasn't echoing his own politics, his opinions, his taste from the pulpit loudly enough. We can all be that way, all want to have our views affirmed with authority to know that that whatever stance we're taking are being supported by those who lead us. Oftentimes, it seems that our cry is, I don't need a leader who challenges me. I need a leader who supports me. Flocks reject shepherds all the time. All the time. You can't blame the pandemic because the pandemic didn't create anything new. This happens in human nature constantly. All that a crisis does is put pressure on the cracks. All that a crisis does is reveal what your insurance company refers to as a pre-existing condition, i.e. not my problem. The crisis brings clarity in the sense that shows us who our leaders really are. The wise man told me recently when I complained about losing people, said we didn't lose them, we never had them. They wouldn't follow you on this, they weren't following you already. Now what does this have to do with asking for rain as we see in Zechariah 10 verse 1? And for that matter, when you look at the text, what does asking for rain have to do with the household gods? that we see in verse chapter 2. How does this all fit together? Well, the connection is actually pretty simple. It's all about who your shepherds are, but who your leaders are, and more importantly, what it means to have no shepherd nor no leader at all. This is a prophecy of Zechariah, but it is addressed to people who cry out to false gods for blessing. And as a result, never find what they're looking for and never will until they turn to the true God. 
This is a prophecy for people who are relying on a series of bad shepherds that they've chosen for themselves. And by triangulating these bad leaders against one another, they in effect have no leader at all. They are a flock with no shepherd. This is a prophecy that proclaims to us that a flock without a shepherd will never be whole until it turns to the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. You look at the opening stanza of this chapter, and in the first three or four lines here in that opening stanza, this is really where we'll spend most of our time. We read these words, Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. Pray for rain, as we've just done, literally, in this service. And then a shift. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. Did Zechariah get distracted? Was he talking about rain? And then he thought, oh no, let me talk about false gods for a minute. No, the two ideas are connected together. As we saw earlier in the year when we started in Haggai, the people that are being spoken to here are people who've been plagued by bad harvests. People who've done the work, but they haven't reaped the benefits of that work. And God has said to them that the reason that you don't reap the benefits is that I'm not allowing you to do so. I'm not letting your work flourish because your focus is on yourselves and not on me. And in that situation, you see one of the dilemmas of the human condition. But as human beings, we have to work. As human beings, we have to work. But our work doesn't guarantee any results. You can do all the right things. You can make the right choices. You can make the right sacrifices in order to do the work that should lead to success and still fail. You can do everything that you were meant to do and more than that. And still, that's no guarantee of success. The author of Ecclesiastes puts it in Ecclesiastes 9.11, The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. doesn't matter how strong you are. doesn't matter how wise you are. You can still fail. Because as a human being, you are dependent. You need something more than your work in order to get the harvest. You need, literally, rain. You need the rain to come, and you have no control over that. Or you need good fortune. Or you need, as we would often say, a little bit of luck to make the difference in what you cannot do and what you cannot control. If we wanted to be good Presbyterians, we could call it providence. But it's the same thing. It's that thing you can't do that is essential to your success. Because you need that, there's some anxiety in our everyday life. We know that there's a dependency that we have, that we need something else beyond what we can do. And so it worries us that maybe we won't get it. Maybe we, it won't happen. Maybe the drought won't end. And that prompts us to reach out for help, as these people did. Now, these were Israelites, and probably In their anxiety, they did the right thing to begin with. They prayed to God for rain. They asked God for help. They asked God to do 
what they needed done so that they, they might have success. But when he didn't bring the rain, they needed it too much to stop there and be content. They needed the rain so much they needed to look someone else for help. So they turned to other gods. Literally, they turned to other gods, the gods of the land. You see, Baal often mentioned in the Old Testament as a false god, an idol. You hear Baal and you think, oh, evil. But Baal was a rain god. Baal was a god who supposedly made it rain. So you can understand why people who, who were dependent on rain might naturally turn to a god whose whole thing was making it rain. If the true God wasn't going to deliver, maybe, maybe Baal would deliver. And so they sought other gods, but they didn't get rain. Instead, they got, in the words of the prophecy, nonsense. They got lies. They got false dreams. And they got empty consolation. So they looked for other false gods and other ones and other ones. What they didn't get was leadership. They didn't find a shepherd. What they got was wandering. They were like a flock without a shepherd now. They were wandering as they'd wandered before. And as we often wander ourselves, we sing, bind our wandering hearts to thee. We reveal a reality about ourselves that we are constantly tried, constantly wandering. But in our piety, to give us, you know, some credit, we do try God first. When we need something, we pray first. We give God a chance to come through. It's only when he doesn't that we move on. It's only when he doesn't deliver on what we're hoping for that we seek what we're hoping for elsewhere. Ask God, but then you don't get the rain. You ask God, but then you don't get the security that you crave. You ask God, but then you don't give, receive the love that you're longing for. So you look for it somewhere else. Christ said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. But instead, we seek the things instead of the kingdom. We neglect the kingdom. We forsake righteousness because we tried those things, and we didn't get what we were looking for. We didn't get what we needed. So we moved on. Turned to other shepherds, other teachers, other philosophies. But the funny thing is, and Zechariah puts his finger on it here, we turn to those things, but we still don't have what we were seeking. Or in the words of the famous Irish theologian Bono, we still haven't found what we're looking for. And I won't sing it. I can't sing a song in a sermon every week or it'll get old. But those of you who know what I'm talking about can probably hear it in your head. We haven't found what we're looking for. The proof of that fact, what he refers to here, it's that we're still wandering. Because if we'd found it, we wouldn't be wandering from one possible savior to another, from one philosophy to another. Right? We've turned our back on what we believed yesterday, but tomorrow we'll turn our back on what we believe today and pretend that we never believed it. The world around us is constantly evolving and we're moving with it, but the rain hasn't come and the emptiness remains. That's not actually evolving. That's just wandering. That's all that that is. You're putting your trust in nonsense, Zechariah says. You're putting your trust in lies, in false dreams. You're trying to be satisfied with empty consolation. And what you need is not a new philosophy, a new thought leader, a new podcaster. 
to follow. What you need is the good shepherd. Now, you know what you're thinking. Wait a second, Mark, you're a pastor, and we often call pastors shepherds. So naturally, you're going to come to the defense of leaders, even bad leaders. You're going to tell us that we should obey leaders, even if they're bad, because you want us to follow you. Well, don't worry, because it turns out the bad leaders are going to get it. The bad leaders are going to get what's coming to them. As the prophecy continues, God says, my anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. You can see in that text that shepherd and leader are synonymous. Now, because we are thinking like churchly thoughts, we think shepherd and pastor go together, but, but it's not pastors that are being referred to here. It's, it's leaders, it's kings. The kings of Israel are shepherd kings after the mold of King David. So this is a condemnation on the leaders of the people who have led them badly, who have led them falsely, who have not only not called out their trust in other gods, but have led them into it, have given given credence to it through their example. What makes them bad leaders is that they too have wandered from God. They serve other gods But they do it, the prophets say, for their own benefit. They do it in order to exploit and abuse the power that they've been given. So, in a sense, they serve false gods, but ultimately, they serve themselves. And they will pay the penalty for that. Now, here in Zechariah 10, Zechariah's prophecy is like a a tiny little recapitulation of an earlier, much bigger prophecy on the same theme in Ezekiel 34, which is where I mentioned you might want to keep a finger. We're not going to go and read Ezekiel 34, but I want you to know it's there because that is a sort of famous condemnation of the shepherds, where God talks about a judgment that is coming on the shepherds, on the leaders of his people, and it follows the same pattern that we see here in Zechariah 10. First, God declares judgment on the shepherd leaders who've abused their power. He calls them out on it. They've basically done what God warned the people kings will do. They have served themselves at the expense of the flock. And there's a result to this. Because the leaders have been this way, the people are like a flock without a shepherd. The people are condemned to wander. That's the first part, the judgment. But then there's a promise in Ezekiel 34 and also here. It's not going to stay that way. But instead, God is going to gather the scattered flock. He's going to gather that flock together. And more, he's going to send his shepherd king, the man of his own choosing, to lead that flock where it was meant to go. The shepherd is announced with a series of messianic images. You see this in verse 4. He's the cornerstone, the tent peg, the battle bow. He's going to raise up his own rulers, as Dan talked about last week in Titus chapter 1. And they will be united together. A, A strong army that will go into battle. An army that will be victorious. But remember, an army of righteousness in a battle for restoration, not destruction. Now, the battle that's described in Zechariah 10 is very similar to what we saw in Zechariah 9. The battle imagery, very similar. The people will be strengthened and they will uh, have victory and they will be, again, with these sort of 
images of, of sort of rejoicing like, like people drunk on wine, rejoicing in the, the joy of victory. But then there's a shift here that introduces a new idea. Like after repeating that thought that, that Christ our Messiah will lead us to this great victory, then we get something else, something new, starting about halfway through our chapter in verse 5. Uh, we see it like the core in 5 through 7, the, the victory in battle, but then in verse 8 through the end, verse 12, the image changes to an image of exodus. Exodus. The God delivering his flock will be like the exodus in the days of Moses. The true God will lead us out of our wandering. God says, I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. They shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. and With their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt, which is where Moses brought them out from, and gather them from Assyria, which is where the northern kingdom, referred to here as Ephraim, had been taken away. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon, back into the land of promise, till there is no room for them. I will fill this place. They shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. Pride of Assyria shall be laid low, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. And I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. So when we hear a prophecy like this, it's easy to dwell on the bad news, I think, the calling out of idolatry, the calling out of our wandering. That is the bad news, that we, like them, are wandering. Many of us are still wandering a great deal uncertain who to follow. But the good news is, here, the God is gathering the wanderers. The God is calling that flock together and that the flock remembers. And memory is a covenant act. The the flock remembers its allegiance to its creator and it returns to live. Now, when you think about the history of Israel, there was this famous event, this sort of founding narrative. Identity of the people of Israel was wrapped up in the deliverance from Egypt, in the deliverance of Moses, breaking the strength of Pharaoh and leading the people out. But that exodus, that literal leading out of the people into the land of promise, exists as a prototype to explain in prophecies like this what God's whole plan of salvation will be like. So in order to explain something unknown, oftentimes you do it by an analogy or comparison to something that is known, and that's what God is doing here. Do you want to know what salvation will be like? Do you want to know what it is I'm going to do? Well, it's going to be like what happened in Egypt. It's going to be like what Moses did in those days, what I did through Moses. If you know that story, then you know what to expect when I do my work of salvation. In the book of Exodus, God calls his people out of Egyptian bondage. He gathers them together, and Moses is given to them as a shepherd to lead them into the land of promise. God says, I'm going to do that over again, only bigger, only on the cosmic scale. 
that in God's plan of salvation, God will call us out of bondage. Not just a, a physical bondage to the Egyptians, but a spiritual bondage to our sin. That God will call us out of that and will gather us into a particular people, into a church, into an ecclesia, a community of believers, a dwelling place for Him. And He will give us a shepherd who will lead us into the land of promise. And that shepherd is the Messiah, the shepherd king, Jesus Christ. So that the literal Red Sea crossing in the days of Moses becomes here a crossing of the Sea of Troubles. The chaos that in Scripture is always symbolized by the roiling sea here is struck down by the power of God. God brings salvation. God establishes order. God restores things to the way that they were meant to be. God makes His people strong and calls us to walk in His name. That's His plan of salvation. He's prophesying the future by reminding us of the salvation that He's done in the past. These are restoration promises. They're the kind of promises now we're far enough into Zechariah where they're familiar to us. Right? You come across a passage and you suddenly realize, oh, this is another promise of a sort of new creation. This is another promise of God leading his people into this changed and restored world. They become so familiar that they're almost commonplace. You get to the point in the prophecy and you recognize, oh, we're going into eschatology mode. We're going into new creation mode. I can skip ahead to the next chapter because the rest of this is probably going to be how glorious new creation will be. And yet, I think when you encounter these words here in the context of where this chapter begins, that context of, of appealing to the wrong gods for reign, of looking to the wrong advisors, the diviners who speak lies, of accepting false comfort, it changes the way these promises sound. I don't know about you, but there's an aspect of the reassurance of these promises that lands differently to me when I think about them in the context of the people's idolatry. I find them more assuring. I guess the reason that I find them more assuring is that the number one reason in my life for doubt is my own idolatry. Closely followed by reason number two, which is your idolatry. Those are the number one and number two reasons for doubt in my life. When I look at myself, and I see myself as a pastor, as a Christian, a man of God, seeking other things before I seek the kingdom, I really despair. I think, what's going on? What's going on? If people like me can be leaders in, in Jesus' church, things have gotten desperate. It makes me wonder what's going on. What am I doing? I know that there's nothing for me in the empty consolation of this world. Why am I listening to it? Why is it still so tempting to wander? But then I look at you, and I see you pulled in the same direction. That makes it worse. Because it's hard enough as a very imperfect leader to lead anyone who wants to be led. It's really difficult to lead people who don't. When they're pulled in so many directions, when the voice of the household gods is so loud in our ears, in our culture, it seems hopeless. But when it seems hopeless, remember God's words. He says, I'll whistle and they'll come. I'll gather them up. 
Wherever they've been scattered, I will bring them in. And it'll be like they were never rejected, never scattered. They will be my people, and this place will be full to bursting. And then I'm encouraged. When I reflect on my weakness, when I reflect on our weakness, promises like this matter and become things to cling to. Because I remember, as you need to remember, that it's not our strength, it's not our righteousness that equips us for the battle. We have a real shepherd for this flock. It's not me. It's him. It's Jesus. God's people never lack a good shepherd. In John chapter 10, which is where we got our words of assurance this morning, Jesus takes this title upon himself. This is a messianic title, as you can see in Zechariah. The shepherd who's going to come will be the king. And Jesus, in John chapter 10, says, It's me. I am the good shepherd. He declares that he's the good shepherd. He declares that the flock of Israel belongs to him and that he will lay down his life for them. The assurance we heard was from verse 4, but if you look in John chapter 10, I'm going to start with verse 8 and go through verse 16. Jesus says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock, one shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus speaks of so many different things. He talks about his atoning death, but he also talks about his resurrection. He talks about the inclusion of the Gentiles in the family of God, those sheep from other flocks that he must bring together. He talks about the union of Israel and the church in one flock. There will be one flock and one shepherd, he says, and much more. All of this you could file under the heading of shepherding. But what I want you to focus on are these words. Jesus says, I know my own, and my own know me. If you go back a little earlier in the chapter to verse 3, Jesus encapsulates the whole plan of this spiritual exodus in this idea of knowing. He says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And in those words, you have in a capsule the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sheep know his voice. He calls them by name and leads them out of their wandering into the land of promise. He knows us. He calls us. He leads us out. That is the good news for wanderers. Jesus, the good shepherd, is our leader. And the Lord knows we're hard to lead. We're hard to lead. 
So many people try to do it and fail. Sometimes it's a blessing. Because even in our idolatry, we're bad idolaters. We never serve one false god faithfully. We always seem to fail at that task. We're always bound down to a pantheon of false gods and false hopes. We're embracing contradictory ideologies, saying things that literally make no sense, have no consistency with one another. We just don't do false hope well. We're always wandering. Our bad shepherds fail to lead us. We only follow where we want to go. Who can lead us? We don't know where we want to go. If you think about it that way, there is only one shepherd who could lead us. There is only one shepherd who has the strength to lead a wayward flock like us. Only Jesus could lead us because he's the only one who knows us. He's the only one who knows us fully. And with him, the consolation isn't always easy, but it is always real. With Christ, there are no lies. There are no empty promises. Christ, there is truth. There is grace. So as he calls, answer. As he whistles, gather. As he leads, follow. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.